We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined, as always, my co-host, Nick Pilato. Tonight, we're coming to you right after the Giants' second preseason game, a comeback victory against the Cincinnati Bengals. That's fine. This has been now two wins for the Giants in the preseason. The preseason, I know, doesn't matter. At the same time, I think Baltimore Ravens just won a record 22nd in a row preseason game. Not that again. Doesn't mean anything. Most of these players, especially in the second half, aren't going to be playing even a snap this season. Maybe a few snaps here or there for some of them, but... At the same time, it's good to see them win. It's good to see the depth paying off. And there are a lot of positive takeaways I have from this game that are kind of unrelated to them winning the football game. But nonetheless, I was happy to see them win. It's always just fun to see a win, even in these meaningless preseason games, whatever you want to make of them. So, Nick, I want to throw it over to you to start this bad boy off. We're kind of going to just go rapid fire, reeling off some of our feelings about what we learned and how it could project moving forward as we Kind of turn the page. We're getting closer to this, this September 11th opener. Sorry, a little bit of tw- tongue twister there, but getting closer to this, Nick. And so kind of trying to get a feel for where we're going to be at. So I guess I'll start by saying this. What was your biggest takeaway from this game? I think we could probably talk about Daniel Jones, right? But I think maybe we should start with these injuries, Dan, just because it was scary, man. And you texted me literally right as the play happened. I looked at my phone and I saw a text from Dan Schneier and I see Thibodeau laying on the ground holding his knee. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so freaking unfortunate and it sucks. But Thibodeau, you know what? We'll the wait and see exactly what happened. But we know that he was joking on the sidelines. He walked off on his own accord. That's all well and good. But Darian Beavers had a knee injury. Graham Gano had a concussion. CJ Board, a rib injury on that hit where he fumbled. DJ Davidson left the game. So the Giants went into this game with a makeshift offensive line where they had to start freaking Will Holden at center, not start, but play Will Holden at center, start Max Garcia there. And now they have a bunch of injuries at other areas of their roster. It's just something to monitor because the team is starting to just be more and more injured. And that's concerning heading into week one. There's definitely a key takeaway as we project moving forward. And I did text you right after that. It was just... I was watching with my pops. We went out for my brother's birthday. Underrated restaurant, by the way, in West Orange, New Jersey. Primavera, really, really good Italian food. The rock shrimp there, unbelievably good. And they had during the summer, they have soft shell crab in there. 
They do it in a nice Italian way. It was fantastic stuff. And we got a chance to watch the game, and it was just like it looked a lot worse than it actually hopefully appears to be with the Thibodeau injury. But when you see someone breathing in pain like that on the ground, clutching a body part, knee specifically, you're just like, damn, this is is this really happening to us in the second preseason game? We're losing the fifth overall pick. Like, how is this even possible for us to always go down this path? But, you know, as you mentioned, he was joking on the sidelines after he told the reporters after the game, he's fine. They're not really going to know for sure if he's fine until the MRI comes back. That's something that I learned when I tore my meniscus. The x-rays were not predictive of what actually happened there. Needed the MRIs, and they told a totally different story. So we're still waiting for that, and hopefully that's tomorrow. They're doing MRI tomorrow. Hopefully that's all right. But when I looked at the replay, Nick, I was really happy to see it was a contact injury. It's the non-contact injuries that really scare me the most. That's when you know, like, all right, this is it. I mean, with Zach Wilson, they got lucky and ended up not being a torn ACL. I thought that was a surefire torn ACL. And he didn't end up tearing his meniscus, I believe, or his MCL, one of the two there, Zach Wilson. So it wasn't. When when it is non-contact, it typically tends to work out bad. So that was definitely something that stood out to me. And you mentioned it. Look, there's so much depth. There were so many depth injuries racking up on this team. I think I saw Justin Panic tweet this from Talking Giants. Like Seven of the 11 rookie draft picks the Giants have this year are currently injured. Like This is absurd. It was the same thing last year, too. Aaron Robinson, Ellerson Smith, all these guys ended up going down either in training camp or before training camp. And then we didn't really see them get ingratiated back into the team until like mid-season. I don't know what it is about the New York Giants, but it seems like over the last couple seasons, the rookies specifically have just been getting dinged up like crazy. Yeah, I don't think this crappy turf helps, but who knows? That's unfounded by me and not scientific whatsoever. But yeah, these injuries are definitely a key takeaway. I think for me, Nick, my biggest takeaway is that I'm going to be a big fan of this play calling moving forward, man. I mean, on that drive, the long drive the Giants had with Daniel Jones and the touchdown, they called nine straight passing plays. I mean, that's music to my ears. I love this style of offense. Don't waste downs running the football. Like, there's just so many. There was a classic situation. The Giants missed the first down play. They had a second and 10. And, you know, last year, we've seen it over the last two years. Under Jason Garrett, they were one of the most run-heavy teams on second and 10. And it's not an opinion I'm about to say. Everything backs it up. The numbers fully back it up. One of the worst decisions you can make as a play caller in football, truly one of the single worst decisions from an efficiency standpoint, is running the football on second and 10. And Dable doesn't do that. I mean, Dable, Kafka, whoever's calling these plays, I think it is Kafka, but I think Dable has a huge influence over this. We don't really know the specifics of that. They haven't really revealed them as they shouldn't. But this new offense, let's just call it a collective, they're not going to run that down. They're not going to burn it down. And I was even more enthused by the second and shorts. They had two on that drive, second and two and a second and one. Those are typical downs where Garrett would be like, let's try to get this first down and reset. Instead, Dable's attacking on these downs. He's passing the football. He's understanding that. Dable Kapka, whatever you want to call it, the Giants are understanding that we can go for more on these downs. We don't need to just hyper-focus on getting the first down. Let's think about, is there a chance for an opportunity for a big play here? Is there an opportunity to make something more of this than just collecting another first down? And so that ninth, that drive, the play calling in general from preseason game one to this, to what I've seen, uh, you know, what we've learned in camp, it's all just a breath of fresh air, man. This is going to be a totally different offense, not just from a schematic standpoint. And we've seen that too with so many open, so many receivers running open and these route combinations more than we've had in the past, but more so just from a situational play calling standpoint, which is something I've been looking for for so long. And we saw it with the Bills, obviously. They were just so pass heavy there, but. Man, I love to see it here. I, I really think if they had gone old Garrett style with that drive, ran on second and 10, that drive's over. Maybe if they ran on some of those second and shorts, that drive wouldn't have gone as far either. So 
for me, that was the biggest takeaway here, the play calling. And a lot of those were actually RPOs. So there are runs built into it, but you're putting the football in your quarterback's hand. And this is something that Daniel Jones did a good job at college. We talk about it a lot at Duke and David Cookless offense. He ran a lot of RPOs, a lot of read pre-snap, post-snap, whatever that defender does, you do the opposite to take advantage of the defense, put them in a lose-lose situation. So a lot of those were RPOs. And Daniel Jones, I got to give him a lot of credit here, man. He was quick. He was decisive, and he's typically pretty good in those situations. It's usually when it's like down the field and through progressions where he struggles a little bit, but he was impressive throughout this game. He had the issue with the interception, but dude, people are like, oh yeah, that ball wasn't placed well. It's like there was an underneath linebacker. I understand what Daniel Jones was doing there, putting it kind of high and away. That's a very catchable ball for Daniel Bellinger. Was it the most catchable? No, but you have that underneath linebacker. You want to be safe with your ball placement. So put it there, have your tight end make a play. Tight end failed to do so. It's a learning experience, not going to kill him for it. And one more thing before you touch on that, though, just because you were talking about the play calling, those choice routes, right? We've been talking about it all offseason, the choice routes. If you watch the the drive, the eight play 52 yard drive, the second or the first touchdown drive in the fourth quarter led by Davis Webb, there was a third and 14 after the Giants took the pass interference penalty against Austin Allen, where Alex Bachman ran directly into the middle of the field, acting like he was going to run a horizontal cross. And then he just sat. I'm imagining, and I didn't watch the film other than broadcast, that that was a choice route where Alex Bachman saw that it was a too high safety, middle of the field, open type of look. And he sat right between those two safeties near the middle of the field and just read the coverage, was on the same page with the quarterback. The quarterback saw it as well and then delivered the football to Alex Bachman, advancing and picking up a third and 14, picked up like 17 yards on that play. If you have these receivers who are on the same page with your quarterback, you can really have an impact against the defense, man, if these guys are in sync like that. So the fact that they have a lot of those types of routes and concepts in their playbook is going to put them in an advantageous position to take advantage of the defense's actions. So I'm really excited about that. And we're going to talk a lot about Davis Webb and Bachman and what the Giants offense was able to complete in that second half in a little bit. But I want to touch a little bit on what you broke down. The first thing that you said, which was a great point, which was this is a lot of those pass calls were the quarterback decision. They're RPOs. It's going to be an RPO heavy offense. That is something that is really important to note because Daniel Jones has been very hyper-efficient. I don't want to say hyper-efficient. For him, hyper-efficient in RPOs with RPOs. This dates back to Duke and specifically to his rookie season with Shermer. And I think there's a chance that this offense, this stable cap offense, will be even more RPO-heavy than even Shermer's was. And I think that's a good thing for a quarterback like Daniel Jones, really for any quarterback. We saw last year a great example of that was with Tua and what they were able to do with Miami, down in Miami. And even, you know, Mahomes uses this. A lot of the best offenses use RPO. It's, there's a reason for it. We've gone over it plenty of times on this podcast. I think Nick has done an excellent job breaking it down, but I think just the, the short of it, to me, the simplicity of it is it puts another defender in conflict and it forces that overhang defender to make a decision. And then it is on the quarterback, like you said, to make the right decision. Um, and I think Daniel Jones has operated really well and made really good decisions out of the RPO. We'll talk a little bit about what Jones did outside of the RPO too. So I want to talk about that too, because I was definitely impressed with Jones tonight overall, um, in, you know, in addition to, what he did at the RPOs, but I'm excited to see them use a staple concept that's actually had success in the past with this quarterback and in the NFL with other quarterbacks. So that's definitely something that was really exciting to me, Nick, from play call, uh, just from a play calling standpoint and overall conceptual standpoint. I think something that was mentioned uh, to me on Twitter that I know we've talked about in the past, Nick, and I could get your take on now 
from our buddy David Goodman. He's like, one thing that you've talked about and that we love is they spread it out to run it from up close. You know, that's not something we saw with Jason Garrett. Every time they wanted to do, they wanted to, you know, make that decision under the under the Garrett offense, it was motion a receiver back toward the line of scrimmage, help him block, have these 13 personnel sets, these heavy personnel. I'm a big believer in it makes it easier for the backs when you actually spread it out and you put fewer guys in the box. And I think that's something we'll see a little bit more of this year as well. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's going on, Big Blue Banter listeners? Do you like to place bets and find ways to optimize your betting experience? Well, then OddsTrader.com is the place for you. OddsTrader is a place to compare odds from all the major sports books. You can also compare the different sign-up codes and promotions from sports books to get the best deal. OddsTrader offers handicapping, play-by-play updates, player statistics, key game statistics, live scoring and tracking, projected game day, weather, and Bet Tracker allows you to keep records of all your games and betting activity. So if you like to place bets and you want to get the most out of that experience, go to oddstrader.com and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's oddstrader.com slash BLUEWIRE. OddsTrader, the number one site for all your game day bets. Yeah, we've seen that proliferate around college football, right? In the Big 12, where you have a lot of teams who are just trying to basically run tight fronts, you know, oaky type eagle fronts. They're doing that because a lot of those teams are having a lot of those offenses in the Big 12 are having success running the football by spreading the defense out, basically aligning wide receivers and plus splits off the numbers by about like five yards, maximizing the space. Football is a game of space, man. You have to take advantage of every inch of the football field. It seems like this giant staff is doing a good job utilizing that. And I love the fact that you want to Put four guys, basically four wide receivers, even though it's 11 personnel tight end out there. And then you just have your offensive line against the defense. Defense is going to be spread out. You have your running back pick and choose his hole, utilize his vision and then attack, get north and south, get downhill, pick up four, five, six, seven yards. Some of these runs, man, I think uh, to start the game, Antonio Williams had like an eight or nine yard run to kick off the game. I'm not I'm not 100% sure if that was a spread type of look, but either way, I feel like even going back to preseason week one, Dan. When the Giants are in tight towards the red zone, they've been running the football. And they did that, I believe, on that third drive. It was a first and six at the goal line. They ran with Sean Corbin, picked up four yards, and then it was second and goal. Another run to Sean Corbin, and he punched it into the red zone. So, yes, they're going to pass a lot, but I feel like they pick and choose when they want to run in a very wise manner. 
Yeah, you nailed that. That's exactly right. I've gotten that feel as well. And that is also something we can bank on as a potential upswing for what we can expect. I mean, people said it. It's obvious, I think, to me and you, Nick, and anyone who's watched this team in the preseason, there's a little more spunk with this team. It's a little more fun to watch them. The offense is operating on a little more of what seems to me, at least, like a professional level. And I know it's the preseason. And look, I want to be honest about the situation. They've now faced two straight full backup defenses, right? Like the Bengals didn't play, I, I think, outside of Daxton Hill, who's probably going to be a quote-unquote starter or damn close to it. They didn't play a single starter on that defense against the Daniel Jones offense. And to be fair, Daniel Jones didn't have his full offensive line. And he didn't have Kadarius Toney as well, or Sterling Shepard, or Saquon Barkley. So that can be said too. But the point is, when you look at just how they move, how they're in sync, like you said, situational play calling. That's the key thing for me. The situational play calling just seems to be operating at such a higher level. I want to touch on and unpack another thing you mentioned before we got into that. And we can talk more play calling, by the way, if you want, if you saw anything else you wanted to talk about, but I don't want to bury that lead, but the, the Cody, uh, the Bellinger interception, right? So the Daniel Bellinger interception, I don't know why I just called him Cody Bellinger. I'm thinking of the fantasy baseball. News <laughs> right, after, right after this, that I have no interest in writing, but if you, if you enjoy, please read, uh, you're still into the fantasy baseball thing. I'm grinded out there. But uh, Daniel Ballinger, the interception of Ballinger, that's not on Daniel Jones. Like, first of all, we want that ball. Like you said, with where the, the second level defender was positioned, we want that ball to be put where he put it. There is a lot of pace on that ball. Some people would say, oh, you should take a little pace off that specific throw. I don't know that I agree with that because if, Cody, if Daniel Ballinger gets his hands up fast enough, that pace is going to help him create yards after the catch there. And I think if you watch some of these quarterbacks, we all talk about how much we love the Justin Herberts of the world. They're putting pace on those throws. Like they're ripping that ball in there. And Daniel Jones, I thought, threw with really good velocity tonight, um, uh, specifically. So, and that to me is a plus. So I think ultimately that is on the tight end. But I also think there's a chance, Nick, that Daniel Bellinger is not, not really a long arm tight end, right? He's not really that tall of a tight end either. Doesn't have that tall of a frame, doesn't have that long of a frame. That just might be not the type of prospect he is. He might not have a huge catch radius and be able to do that. I still feel like. The Giants, like, yeah, we love Daniel Ballinger. He's a fun prospect. He's a fourth-round prospect. Like, I still feel nowhere close to settled in at this tight end position, personally. Um, especially, you know, we saw Aiken playing deep into the, the, the second half. Like, he feels like he's just going to get cut. So, I, I put that one on the tight end, and I, I'm not so sure that's like a top. I think that could just be a limitation of his game, Ballinger. I don't think he's all of a sudden going to grow longer arms or, or create some kind of bigger catch radius. I think that's fair, too. He has 32.5-inch arms, which is 25th percentile for tight ends, and then his wingspan is 14th percentile. So that's pretty limited in terms of the tight end position. And when you look at that play in general, if you guys want to pull it up, I know people... I haven't tweeted it yet. I'll, I probably will when I get in depth with the film, but I found it on Twitter. Others have tweeted it. I like that play call a lot, man, because it's a second down right. situation, second medium, and you have two wide receivers to the field side. Both of them release to the outside, clearing out that side of the field. So it's on Bellinger from the boundary side, who is a Y attached to the line of scrimmage, to just release and then separate into open space. And that entire side of the field that he's releasing into is open because of the outside releases from the opposite side of the field. And Bellinger actually does a really good job creating separation against 26 on that play, man. At the top of his break, he uses a little, you know, flipper, little shimmy flippers. When you take that outside arm, you basically just, you don't fully extend to get the, you know, yellow laundry, but you just kind of make contact. You lean into it, you lean into them, and then you break on that outside foot, go over the middle of the field. And in your break with your elbow, you just kind of 
nudge that defender and you create that kind of separation. And he did a good job and he broke, I would say, took a good angle away from that underneath linebacker to give Jones a window to throw it into. He just didn't secure the damn football, man. You just got to catch the football in that situation. Not the end of the world for the kid whatsoever, but you just got to rise to the occasion. And that's not on Daniel Jones. I know a lot of people were trying to blame him for that, but I'm I'm not going to blame Daniel Jones for that. Completely agree with you on that. That cannot be blamed on Jones, even if it looked like that potentially on the first view. When you watch that, and I think this will especially be true, Nick, when we watch it on the All-22, I don't think we'll see any blame. I, I don't think either of us will come away feeling like there's any blame there for Daniel Jones. And and maybe now is a better time than ever to just get into our evaluation of what we thought we saw from Daniel Jones tonight. And again, we're going to be fair about it. He did play against a full slate of Bengals backups. I understand that. But like I said at the beginning, he didn't have his full slate of starters. And that's you know, something that should also be considered. So my thoughts on Daniel Jones here, the key for me tonight with Daniel Jones was not the, well, let me get into things I liked and then the thing I loved. Okay. I'll start with the things I liked, Nick. The things I liked, I liked his velocity tonight. Uh, I liked some standout throws he made. The throw he made, the back shoulder to, to, to Davis Stills, that's one of the best throws he's made in a long time that I've seen, at least on tape. I mean, we, are, we don't have much to work with. The sample size is small. We now have just two preseason games and a scrimmage and some practice video, but that was a really good throw. He put that in a perfect spot. The trajectory was perfect. The ball placement was perfect. The pace on that throw was perfect. And, it, and it's a tough catch to make. A receiver has to catch that away from his frame, adjust in air, back shoulder. But that's what we want to see more of. That was excellent. I thought he threw some of those RPOs, those inbreakers, really well with good velocity, good ball placement, and timing was there for him. More importantly, I thought he worked through his progressions and did a good job to get some checkdowns, specifically to the running backs, the one in the red zone to Antonio Williams. That was excellent. I mean, he picked up a first down. And more importantly on that throw, it wasn't just getting to the checkdown, Nick. What I liked is the ball placement and velo on that throw because that throw is put a little behind Antonio Williams there or just a little ahead of him or a little too high or a little slower. I don't think he's going to get enough yards after the catch to get that first down. So I think that was a lot that that had a lot to do with throw. But what I actually loved about what I saw from Jones tonight more than any of that is I just felt like he was fully in command of the offense for the first time in this new system. I hadn't seen it in the practice videos. I didn't see it as much in uh, the scrimmage, obviously the Giants fan fest scrimmage. And then in the first preseason game, you saw glimpses of it. But on that drive, that long touchdown drive, it felt like he was in full control of the offense. It felt like he was comfortable. It felt like he was calm in the pocket. I loved how he looked in the pocket. And to be fair, the Giants gave him a pretty damn good pocket for what seemingly was his entire time in the game. <laughs> we'll get to this, Nick, because we got to get to the offensive line. But it just felt like the offensive line gave the good pocket for most quarterbacks the whole game, which was wild to think about with all the injuries in the offensive line. But I would say let's start there with Daniel Jones. Any thoughts on any, any of those observations? Yeah, absolutely. I felt like he was decisive. He was poised. And I feel like you're 100% accurate that this was the most comfortable that I've seen Daniel Jones all training camp and the scrimmage that we went to the blue and white scrimmage. And then in the first preseason game, very decisive with those RPOs. And I love that throw to David Sills that you brought up. And that's just a smart throw here. We talk a lot about Daniel Jones's processing, right? Well, sometimes processing is linked to your ball placement. And in on that specific throw, if you watch it, that cornerback is playing inside and high on David Sills. And Daniel Jones processes that and knows he has the back shoulder throw. Cincinnati brings a blitz. It was all picked up well and good by the New York Giants protection. But I love the fact that Daniel Jones recognized the leverage of the defender and then put the ball in a place that only David Sills could climb that proverbial ladder and make a play on it. And David Sills, to his credit, did a great job snapping his head around, finding the football, locating, adjusting his body to it, and then coming down with the football. 
just in terms of Daniel Jones, I, I was impressed. I was impressed by the, you know, we only got a couple drives from Daniel Jones, but overall, definitely impressive. 14 of 16, 416 yards, had that interception. We already kind of went over that, but got to kind of take it all into context, Dan. This is Cincinnati Bengals' second team where you're not really seeing a lot of players who are going to probably see a substantial amount of defensive snaps other than probably Dax Hill. Yeah, for sure. And that's important to note for sure. But I think almost for me, it's like versus any defense, I, I still feel like we could take away what we already mentioned, which was how calm and collected he felt and, and in control of the offense he felt. Um, and yeah, part of that is potentially facing these types of backup type players. Um, but still, I think it's worth noting. And let's get to the next point here, which is the Giants offensive line. We can talk about specific players. I feel like we're better off doing that once we get a chance to watch the All-22. But it's up to you if you mm-hmm. want to talk about any of the specific players. But just as a collective whole, the first-team offensive line, what was left of it, like like you said, with players like Max Garcia having to play, every M, like Hamilton, Garcia, guys you're not expecting, then moving down the depth chart as they move to the Dyra Taylor offense, the second team, and the Davis Webb third team. As a collective whole, it just felt like this offensive line, man. I, I, I tweeted out, I felt like I was watching the Bizarro episode of Seinfeld when it's like the reverse of what Jerry and, and, and our, uh, you know, the whole Seinfeld crew. Great episode. Like, yeah, it's an ex- excellent episode. Because, I mean, they're like in any time in the past however many years, it's been a long time. I feel like it's been a decade, maybe a decade plus. I really haven't felt great about this offensive line since 08. Like there's been some times it's been okay from 09 to 2021 for these past whatever, 12 years in between that. But Nothing really that good. I mean, it really wasn't since 08, the 2008 season. And, man, they got makeshift guys. They've down seven guys on the line collectively from all the units. And yet, all these units continue to play at a pretty high level. The first team, the second team, the third team. This is the second straight preseason game where we've seen this happen. It just feels it feels like we're, we're maybe taking that leap forward. And I want to give credit here because I know in the past, Nick, we've like, every time the Giants got a new offensive line coach, we're like, since the Hal Hunter one, we just knew it was going to be an absolute failure and a disaster and a ridiculous hire, just a purely ridiculous hire. But since then, we've been like, yeah, Mark Colombo, we love this dude. He's going to be great. Oh, <laughs> Hal Hunter, we love this dude. He's going to be to Google Emma. Oh, you know what? He's doing some cool things. Maybe he'll be great. And it always feels like it's hard to tangibly judge, but only thing I could go by was there was not any real improvement with the depth on the Giants offense lines under those guys, the second and third team units or the first team unit. I feel like maybe Bobby Johnson and the technique that they've they've preached, and we knew from the start of training camp, from the start of OTAs, they were going to change the techniques a little bit for these offensive linemen and ask them to do things they weren't previously asked to do. Maybe it's getting through to these guys. Maybe this is how you connect to these younger players and to some of the players that have been in the in the team because I feel like we're seeing a really noticeable jump in offensive line play from past seasons, from past preseasons, I should say. Yeah, I agree with this. I don't think we're being hyperbolic here. I think the additions of players like Mark Lewinsky significantly help as well. Guys who maybe, you know, aren't thought of as great offensive linemen, but they're just steady Eddie. And last year, I mean, look at what the Giants were trotting out there. But there was something interesting I saw on Twitter, and I I can't wait to watch the film to see it. But I saw Evan Neal, I believe it was, forklift a defender. By forklift, I basically mean it's like the fork technique. When a defender engages you, they get their hands inside, they fit their hands inside and you're an offensive lineman, instead of trying to snatch the defender and break his wrist down to force the defender's momentum downward, you basically go underneath the defender's arms and you lift them up. And I remember I was watching a training camp video that they put on the Giants YouTube. That's great stuff that they put up there 
where Bobby Johnson was teaching that technique to Jamil Douglas because Jamil Douglas was trying to break the contact of, I think it was Dexter Lawrence. And then Bobby Johnson says, no, no, no. He like, pulled him aside and you can't hear it, but you just see him kind of like put Jamil Douglas's hand on, on his own chest and then he goes underneath and lifts it up. So it was kind of cool to see Bobby Johnson teach that to uh, one of his players and then you see Evan Neal execute that same technique. And I think you could find that video floating around right now on Twitter of Evan Neal's block, but I don't know. I just kind of thought of it and I was like, dude, we, we watched him teach that technique. So it's just, it seems like he has a lot of tricks in his back pocket. It seems like he really connects with his offensive lineman. It seems like he has a ton of respect around the building. So hopefully we're not, you know, putting the cart before the horse. And I got to say how Hunter, we did not say that about, but we definitely said it about Colombo and DiGuglielmo. How Hunter, n- not so much. No, no, I, I said I, 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 I phrased that wrong. Obviously, we knew How Hunter yeah. was disaster. That's what I said, and then I repeated, yeah. and I meant Rob Sale, not not How Hunter. But we did yeah, say it about Rob Sale. We did get some. We confidence. did. Yeah, it's easy to get confidence. There's all these good puff pieces. You saw. Oh, look at what he did with that Louisiana Tech Rage and Cajuns line. Uh, we, we see uh, <laughs> Robert Hunt. Robert Hunt. Oh, look at the job he did. You know, it's very easy to get excited about. Mark Colombo worked with that Cowboys, but this you actually see some tangible results here so far with Bobby Johnson, and it feels good. It really is a good thing to see. I want to talk a little bit about a guy who got a great opportunity tonight working with the first team offense, and that's Antonio Williams. Here's a player who. Came over from Buffalo, understood the system, played in the system there a little bit, and seemed like a little bit of an untapped potential talent, has been steadily moving up the depth chart. Nick profiled on Big Blue View last week how he performed in his first preseason game, and Williams was really good in his first preseason game. I talked about the contact bounds. Nick talked about something that was even more impressive than that because a lot of running backs have that trait. The one that he talked about was the mental processing, the ability to have that vision. It's pretty natural. We talked about this with... Uh, Dave, uh, David Syverson from our, our lads last week uh, when we were chatting up about the Giants and Saquon Barkley and things of that nature. It's that mental processing, that ability to set up your runs, to, to have the vision, the natural vision. I do feel like he is a player who potentially has that and has it to the extent of playing at this next level. What did you see from Williams in his big opportunity tonight? Do you feel like there's now an opportunity for him to potentially move into the RB2 role? See, that's where it gets tricky with the RB2 yeah. role because I don't know how the team feels about Matt Breida. So I, I don't necessarily want to declare that. I think there's an opportunity, though. I guess you could say there's an opportunity. I'm just not 100% certain how solidified Mike Kafka and Brian Dable are with Matt Breida. But I, I, I come away impressed with Antonio Williams. He didn't get as much work in this game as he did in the last game. But what we saw him do, or at least I should say as much work on the ground, but what we saw him do was act as a receiver, which we didn't see all that much in the Patriots game. That was more of a role reserved for Deshaun Corbin. And he had seven catches for 46 yards on seven targets. And you brought this up a little bit before, Dan, and I thought it was a really good point. It was a lot of checkdowns. It was a lot of a lot of short passes to the flat. And a lot of that, you know, you say like check down kind of has a negative connotation. But I liked the fact that Daniel Jones was going through those progressions. And I have to see the all 22 to really confirm this. But you can see there were times where he would check it down, quote unquote, to that running back. And that running back would have space. Like Antonio Williams averaged 6.6 yards per catch here. And this wasn't against like soft defenses. And some of them came pretty big spots. So it was good to see Antonio Williams be used as a receiver. And in terms of him running the football, averaged 5.2 yards per carry. He only had five carries on the game. It was more of a Deshaun Corbin rushing game. I like the fact that the Giants are giving both of these players different types of opportunities. I thought Antonio Williams was fine, but once I get into the all 22, I can really kind of tell how he was setting those blocks up. But please go check yeah. out the Big Blue View piece if you haven't seen it. Just type in Nick Filato, Antonio Williams into Google. Hopefully it will come up because Antonio Williams was very, very nuanced 
in that Patriots game on how he set up the blocks. And you could say, oh, well, he's going up against second stringers. And yeah, okay. But at the same time, it's the mental acuity and the decisiveness that he runs with when he's pressing the line of scrimmage to set up the blocks, to maximize his blockers in front of him. And that's a trait that I feel like is a processing thing rather than I'm just going up against, you know, these scrubs kind of thing. So I, I, I came away really impressed against the Patriots and, and he looked fine from the broadcast version this week as well. Yeah. And you make a great point right there, Nick, because some of these things you can evaluate independent of, are you playing the second or third stringers, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. Yes. If you're playing first string defense, maybe they close the gap a little faster and you don't create as many yards after, you know, after first person through. But as far as processing and picking, making the right decisions as a running back, it's an incredibly important trait. We've talked about a lot on this podcast, podcast over the last, you know, since 2018. And it's kind of independent of who you're playing against, in my mind, at least, because it's really just on you. And so we'll, we'll see how that looks after after we look at kind of the all 22 and get a better feel. But he's certainly on the upward trajectory there. One more note on the offensive line uh, before we maybe move forward on that. I don't know if you have more to say on that, but I just thought it was crazy how at the end of this game, the Giants as a collective. This is a game again where they threw for a lot of yards. So keep that in mind. They passed the ball. A lot of plays. They've called a ton of pass plays. I talked about the nine straight pass play calls on the Jones touchdown drive. Then they <laughs> threw a whole lot of passes in the second half with Davis Webb. Despite all that, Nick, just one sack allowed and two total quarterback hits allowed. Just wild numbers for an offensive line that, like you said, was down to players like Holden and you know, you know, players who just may not even ever make the Giants roster or even the practice squad to some. It's possible they don't even make the practice squad. Again, they're going up against Cincinnati's second string, but I still think it is impressive. And the fact that there were RPOs and a lot of quick hitting passes and things like that kind of make it a little bit easier for the Giants offense. But there were times where they were going into, you know, five step drops, keeping their eyes downfield with Tyrod Taylor, a little bit with Daniel Jones and definitely with Davis Webb. And to the credit, man, Tyrod Taylor is so smooth in the pocket. Tyrod Taylor probably was the worst quarterback of the bunch in this game. But he maneuvers the pocket so damn well. And Davis Webb, dude, that guy can really move. Like he's pretty damn athletic back there in the pocket, evading, evading defenders and stuff like that. So I, I felt like even if they did get pressure, the quarterbacks did a really good job maneuvering the pocket to just mitigate the fact that they were to mitigate the risk essentially of getting sacked. Well, we'll get to Webb. Trust me, we're gonna get a little bit to we're gonna get to Webb a little later. That was too too fun not to talk about. But yeah. I like that point by you, too. We've talked a little bit about their ability to maneuver the pocket, specifically Taylor in the past. So definitely a good evaluation and observation there. I wanted to talk about something else here, Nick, that I'm sure you know I loved. And that was Brian Dave's decision to go for it on fourth and short. I know it didn't work this time. I get it. They ran it. They didn't get it, apparently. Though I, I think that was a very odd spot. It felt to me like an obvious first down, but who knows? I'm not there. But what I loved about this, Nick, was Instead of being, you know, results oriented, like you can be and sometimes in, when things go wrong, I after the game, Giant Insider reported that Dable said, I'm a big believer in analytics, especially when it comes to fourth down situations. So, God, did I love to hear that one, Nick. After last year, Joe Judge owned the two most cowardly punts in the entire season, <laughs> according to the Cowardly Index. One was like a fourth and one at the opponent's 41. I think the other was like a fourth and two at the 40, like. These days are over, man. They're, they're gone. I'm so happy. I don't even care when they don't work. You know me. I've, I've had this argument with you a bunch. I'm a believer that when you're uh, fourth and goal, you never should kick the field goal because the worst case scenario is you turn the ball over and all you need to do is co- uh, collect the three and out on defense with an offense playing out of their own end zone and they punt and you're right back in field goal range with one first down. So to me, you're not losing almost anything. 
when you go for it. And you're gaining potential for four extra points. So anyway, the point is, he's going to look at that. And the analytics say you should be going for it there. The analytics say you should have gone for it in the situation they went for it in today, Nick. And I don't care that it didn't work. I'm happy he did it. That's some Brandon Staley stuff. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about that as well. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And there's definitely going to be times where we come on here and it doesn't work. And we're like, ah, oh, what the heck? You know, but he's putting the confidence in his players, he's putting the conf- confidence in his offense to go out there and execute. And hopefully they do. I think it's all contextual. And I know, I know you do as well. But, you know, if, if it makes sense from an analytical standpoint, then yes, I, I'm all for going for it. But again, if it doesn't, I don't think you should just do it just to do it. I think I'm a little more stupid about it than you are, Nick. I'll be honest. I am very aggressive with it. I just tend to be more aggro. I do agree, though. It is contextual. There are situations where I haven't always been gung-ho about it. But for the most part, I'm pretty aggro with it. And I'm I'm excited to see. And in analytics, say you should be aggro. So I'm excited to see that. Even though we don't know if he will be aggro or not, it feels like he might be. And he has been so far. And it doesn't even matter if you're more aggro or not. As long as you're just more aggro than what... Joe Judge was, that's that's enough for me to just be a little happier than I was about Dan, some of those punt situations last year. Yeah. Those punt situations were crazy, but you just said aggro five times, bro. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that word. It's a poker, it's a big poker term. Okay, so it's a poker term. So the only exposure I had to the word aggro, a little side story, is when Diana and I, we flew into Denver, Colorado, and our Uber driver was this pure stoner dude. And one of the first sentences out of his mouth, he's like, oh, you guys from Denver? We're like, no, we're flying in. We're visiting. And he was like, oh, man, you know, this place is just so chill. There's nobody. No one's aggro here. You know, we're just so chill. We're so accepting. And I was just like, dude, this guy definitely just ripped a bong recently. Like he had the smell and everything. And aggro was the term that like I was like, dude, this place is special. I I love Denver, though. It was a lot of fun. No, it's a great place. Colorado in general is, is arguably my favorite total state. But I'm a huge mountains guy and, and huge hiking guy. And they've got so many. It's not just Denver. I mean, Vail, uh, Boulder, Fort Collins, so underrated, Colorado Springs. But anyway, this is not a podcast about Colorado. It's a podcast about the Giants. So getting back on track. Love to see that from Dave's. Let's talk a little bit now about, well, we, we, did, we didn't mention the injuries. There was one we didn't mention. Ellerson Smith was in a walking boot after the game, according to Pat Leonard. That's not great. I mean, Jesus, another injury just piling up. You talked about Beavers. That one looks like it might be really serious, which really sucked because he was coming along nicely. Any other injuries I missed or anything you want to talk about on that front? In terms of the injuries, I, we just got to wait and see exactly yeah. what the hell's going on. It's hard to really weigh in until we get the MRIs and all the tests done. Okay. Let's instead talk a little bit about what this giant third team offense did with David Webb <laughs> at the helm. I mean, come on. This was so much fun. I, I'm going to go ahead and say, Nick, I, I, told, I said this like months ago on this podcast. I really think Davis Webb, are good, a case could be made is don't take this the wrong way, please. And so not take this the wrong way. But a case can be made that he is the best pure arm talent on this roster. I think a fair case can be made. Just pure arm talent. Doesn't mean he's the guy I want throwing the ball. Daniel Jones is a much better quarterback than Davis Webb in every way possible. And and that includes in, at times that that thing I went over, the arm, just pure arm talent. But it's fun to watch him back there because he plays with no, he plays very free. Like you mentioned too on Twitter, I think, or you might have mentioned the top of this pod. He knows the offense pretty well. He played with it last year. Like he learned it pretty well. He plays with a lot of freedom. And I mean, in one half of football, this dude slung it around 22 of 27, 204 yards and two touchdowns in a half of football. I mean, that's truly impressive numbers. 11 of 11 for 122 for Alec Bachman, who I also want to talk about Alex Bachman, two TDs. 
I was I feel like Davis Webb is I don't know if I'm a huge believer in carrying three quarterbacks. I'd never have been. I don't really see the value of it, Nick, unless you're developing one them to be your future. And I don't think either Tyrod or Webb is going to be that. But it's hard to say he hasn't earned a roster spot. If there is a situation where you carry three, this might be the situation. It's just because Davis Webb has kind of a unique path where he almost retired. He was going to be a coach. He decided to stay on to be a player. And he knows this system so damn well from playing with the Buffalo Bills last season. And I think he can impart a lot of wisdom onto Daniel Jones. And I think that's really, really important. But if they do decide to keep three, Dan, I do think this is the situation that it would warrant it just because the kind of extenuating circumstances surrounding Brian Dable, Davis Webb and Daniel Jones being Daniel Jones. And because Tyrod's a good backup. And so I think you make a great point. It's not like you can move on really from Tyrod. And at the same time, you kind of get an extension of a coach with Davis Webb. So if you carry him, yeah, you're kind of burning a roster spot in some in some ways because you're going all the way down to QB3, but not really if he's making a big difference in what Daniel Jones sees on a play-to-play, drive-to-drive basis is kind of that extended coach, like a player. A player is also a coach in some ways. So yeah, I, I can kind of get with that. Another interesting note associated with that is that Daniel Jones... Injury prone. Tyrod Taylor, yep. kind of injury prone throughout his career. Right. But if they don't keep three, I'm not going to be like, why didn't they keep three? It's just if they do, I understand it. A hundred percent. And then, yeah, I mean, that was a great that was not a caveat. It's a great point. I mean, Jones has been injured a lot and we saw what it could have devolved into last season when they had to claim Jake Fromm off another team's oh my practice gosh, squad dude. and then start him. And like it led to the most unwatchable football I've ever experienced in my entire life as a Giants fan. So maybe there is some value to putting in some fallback options and some plans to avoid that because it's yeah ultimately it didn't make much of a difference because the Giants weren't making the playoffs last year maybe it even helped them some would argue long term and there is a fair case to make maybe they don't get Kayvon Thibodeau if they had a competent backup last year or a competent QB3 maybe they don't even get Evan Neal whatever it may be or not Evan Neal obviously that one makes no sense but the, the fact of the matter is no one wants to watch that again I I don't care I, I, nobody wants I can't hold it we can't do that again, Nick. I don't want to watch the All-22 on that again. It was one of some of the most painful experiences of our lives, just going through that, being like, all right, dude, what are we going to talk about today with this offense? There's literally nothing to talk about, especially with Jason Garrett at the coordinator. So I do see some value in that as well. But let's talk a little bit about his performance, man. Like I said, 22 of 27, 204, two TDs. Bachman was his go-to guy. We can talk about both of them right now. 11 for 122 for Bachman. I mean, really, truly fun performance from those two. It just seemed like they couldn't be stopped. Like Davis Webb was so on fire, and Bachman was just finding the little crevices in Lou Anarumo's defense. He played a lot of zone on those drives, kind of just putting his guys in a position to see how they reacted. And Alex Bachman was just really doing a great job finding ways to get open and then making people miss. He he, I, I would love to see the missed tackles. He had to have had at least three or four missed tackles, typically right after the catch. So. I don't think Alex Bachman's going to ultimately make this team, but damn, I'm really happy for that kid, man, because he balled out in two separate situations where it was, we need to drive down the football field and take the lead late in the fourth quarter. So man, tip my hat to Alex Bachman, dude, because he played really well. And Davis Webb, dude, just showed the command of this offense and really is just going to make it a difficult decision to not carry three quarterbacks. I'll be honest with you, Nick. I'm weirdly intrigued by Alex Bachman. I, there was a play he made in training camp that they they did uh, they caught on video and put on one of those training camp lives that we always watch because it's like our best exposure to it. 
And he made a really smooth transition from catching a sideline pass to shifting his body weight and then bursting up field for what and ultimately ended up being a long touchdown. I think he has interesting traits. I know you're probably right. He's probably not going to make an impact at the NFL level. He's probably more of a David Sills type, like dominate preseason type corners and you know have trouble against NFL level talent, the guys who start on Sundays. But man, it's pretty intriguing and it's pretty cool to see at the very least, the guy who's been grinding through the practice squad for three years now and just grinding, try to get any kind of NFL opportunity, come up with 11 for 122 and two TDs. You know this is going to make his life. Like, even if he doesn't make any NFL, he'll always have this moment. And it's fun for him. Like I saw him on the sideline after the second touchdown uh, from Webb, which is ultimately the game winner. And, you know, it, it was cool to see Xavier McKinney by him because Xavier McKinney is clearly evolving into a big leader of this team. This is a, talking about a defensive back coming right over to a fourth string receiver or whatever it is with the, with an offensive guy, you know, with the last team offense and pumping him up. And you saw Saquon Barkley obviously talking to him as well. It's just really cool to see, in my opinion, for this guy, like you mentioned. But we'll see. He has some interesting traits. And as far as Webb goes, like you said, it was funny. It, it is like he was at times it felt like he was on fire. And it just it's great to see Webb now do this because there was a coaching staff once, Nick who made the decision after watching all these guys throw the football. And I get it. Look, he didn't draft a guy. It was the previous regime who drafted Davis Webb. I know he's not the best processor. He has tons of flaws in his game. But there was a coaching staff, Nick, that said, this is, goes right to our coaching hubris, con, uh, by the way, conversation that said, I scouted this kid from a small school. We liked how he threw Kyle Aletta. He's got a quick release. They looked at Kyle Laletta and they looked at Alex Tanny and they decided that those are the guys they want to move forward with instead of Davis Webb. And it's just so funny to me because neither of those guys have anywhere near the arm talent of Davis Webb. And neither of those guys can, in my mind, ultimately make any kind of make any kind. And I'm not saying Davis Webb can make any headway in, in the NFL, but Davis Webb is performing at a high level in this preseason game at the very least and has been you know pretty consistent with the Giants so far through camp and through the preseason. So it was just good for me to see like kind of the redemption for him with the Giants ultimately. Yeah, it comes full circle, right, man? I mean, drafted by the Giants, leaves the Giants. Now he's back. And you're, you're right, man. The ball jumps out of this guy's hand. He's only 27 years old, too. Like you think of Davis Webb as being a little older, but it was only third round pick in what, the 2017 draft, the last draft with Jerry Reese. He's uh, he's intriguing for sure, but you know he's he's Davis Webb. He's not he's not going to you know come in and and be the the starting quarterback and lead the Giants to the Super Bowl or anything. But still, man, he looks good in preseason. And like I tweeted, he's uh, if if you need a final drive in preseason, Davis Webb is your guy. Like if you play preseason DFS, Davis Webb is your guy. Yeah, one hundred percent. I just think it's interesting how coaches make decisions. We're going a little more thirty thousand foot view here, and it's kind of jumping the shark in some ways or just kind of going out of context. But I do want to just say this one more th thing. Like, it's just interesting to me, Nick, how coaches can evaluate quarterbacks, like to go with, make the decision of, you know, going with your guy in Laletta or, or Tanny over a guy like this. It's just like, I just don't feel like if I was ever in charge of this thing, I would ever pick the guys with those limited arm talents uh, profiles. I just don't, there's such a small margin for error when you don't have arm, when you don't have great arm talent, you have to just be like a perfect processor who stays on time. And like all the time and things never go wrong. It just seems to me like such a small margin for error. I don't know, man. So whatever. It's fun. It was fun to watch Davis Webb out there. I had a good time watching the second half. You know, you don't usually expect to have have fun watching the watching the second half of these things and actually turned into a fun, fun time for sure. Anything else we missed in this quick recap? We're gonna obviously do some more analysis on this later after we have a chance to watch a little more. But anything else we missed? 
I think just because we haven't talked a lot about the defense, sure. I want to bring up maybe a couple things about the defense. And if and I know we've brought this up a lot throughout, you know, the off season and everything. But man, if if they suffer one other injury other than the Cordell <laughs> Flaw injury in the secondary, they are so freaking screwed. Dude, they really are like, well, I say that now, but like what in reality, what's going to happen is the Giants are going to release like three or four guys and then just bring in dudes who are in training camp on other teams. And I think at least two of them are going to be cornerbacks because you got guys like Kwame Lassiter, the second <laughs> going seven yep. for 91 on seven freaking targets. <laughs> and like, you know, God bless Evans, man. Like he's very long. He's like, you know, 94. Fifth percentile in length. Right. The, the dude is just seems lost out there, and he's just getting torched. And yeah, he's you know a third stringer, but he's going up against other third stringers. Man, you want to see him rise to the occasion. So if, I, if something happens to a Dory Jackson or Darnay Holmes, even more specifically, a Dory Jackson and Aaron Robinson, uh, oof, it could be a long, long season for the defense. Yeah, you're right, Nick, and it's definitely a concern. I don't mean to laugh it off. I mean, it is what it is. They're going through a rebuild. You have to under like. We have to always yeah. take a step back and consider that the past regime did a really poor job with the roster. It's the damn truth of it. They had, for some reason, I don't know how they did such a bad job considering the draft capital they had year after year, including play- picks they traded for by getting rid of guys like Odell Beckham, Damon Harrison, and players that you know used to be on this team. But they just didn't do a good job from either a depth or a top-end talent standpoint of accruing talent. So it's going to take some time. Like, the secondary needs a lot of time to, to get, like you said, to get corners. And even Aaron Robinson doesn't, to me, I, I'm starting to definitely tend, tend to lean toward this could be a problem with him on the outside. Maybe he just is a slot guy. And maybe the Giants are just like, well, let's try him here because he's still probably our best option as the second outside corner. We don't really have anything. And we didn't have 17,000 first-round draft picks this year to try to get a corner. So maybe that's kind of the feel right now. But like you said, they don't really have any margin for error from an injury standpoint at that position. And like you said, I feel that way almost in some ways it's less impactful, but in some ways about the inside backer position. That's why I was really disappointed to see the Beavers injury tonight. I loved his trajectory. I felt like he was going to push Crowder sooner rather than later. I even saw this week prior to this game, he was starting to mix in with some first team reps over Crowder. Now you lose if you lose a guy like that for a while. I, I feel like almost we're taking a bit of a step back there too. I think that's a good point, but what gives me a little bit of solace w- w- with that specific position is I think there's going to be a lot of snaps where there's only one linebacker out there, and it's right. probably going to be Blake Martinez. They'll rotate some Tay Crowder in there, Michael McFadden, Darren Beavers if he was healthy. But cornerback, man, you can't do that. You, you need to go out there and play outside cornerback. You need like four competent ish cornerbacks if not more in a very volatile position that has a high injury risk so you know Aaron Robinson you know a lot of giant fans are looking at him right now and they're saying this guy you know he's not it but I'm like dude that that guy is better than anything else the Giants have by far other than Adoree Jackson for the outside at least right now well now Cordell Flock could he rise to the occasion possibly but he's not quite there yet and he's injured right now so you're going into week one against Tennessee Aaron Robinson's your best bet by far as the cornerback too. And uh, <laughs> he's going to get picked on, man. He's going to have to rise to the occasion. I think he has the talent to do so. I think he has the athletic ability to do so. But just like Jerome Henderson says, he needs to trust his technique and be a little bit more disciplined. And if he could do that, I think he'll be okay. He's going to give up some big plays here and there, but I just don't want it to be a Corey Ballantyne situation where you have freaking Aaron Rodgers circling his name and just attacking and attacking and attacking. If that's the case, 
Ooh, it's gonna be it's gonna be rough on defense, man, because they're gonna have to scheme to protect that, which is gonna take away from what Wink Martindale wants to do in general. And we don't want that. Yeah, you nailed it. And you you said it best, I feel like. Well, time will tell. It's almost funny to me. It feels like we talk always, Nick, about like how unicorn-esque a position like tight end is. They're just so hard to find. It's so hard to get the right guy. Corner, there are more good prospects available in drafts than tight end, but a lot of these prospects never come to fruition. It is, in my opinion, really hard to find good outside corners like consistently that you can count on. It's such it's another like we'll go into next offseason again when we hit draft season, Nick, and even maybe in free agency potentially, if there's a young good guy we're intrigued by. And we're probably gonna be pushing again to like consider corner with the first round pick or the second round pick. It's like that it's it's that situation until until it's not and until until those guys are not only consistently, but they can also stay on the field and not be injured a lot too. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops throughout the season for sure. And it's crazy too, man. Think back to the 2021 draft before they selected Aaron Robinson. We were like, oh, one of the strengths of this team is, you know, know. The quarterback. We have James Bradbury. We have a Dory Jackson. We have Darnay Holmes. You know, we're we're doing pretty well here. And, and just one year later, we're like, oh my God, burn it down. It sucks. You know, so like, it's just one of those positions you need. And when you incorporate a defensive coordinator like Wink Martindale into the equation, man, like you really need it. So that's just going to be one of those things that we're going to be talking about a lot throughout the season. Yep, for sure. All right, that's all we have for tonight on the quick preseason recap of the Giants win over the Bengals. We'll be back soon. Thanks again for tuning into the Big Blue Bandit podcast and have a great rest of your week. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal.